Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Hot divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. Episode 36 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. On today's episode, we're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process and get an inside look into mediation, collaborative law, and the litigation process from the perspective of a mental health professional. Our guest today, she's seen it all. The mistakes and the missteps that far too many couples make during the divorce process. How can couples navigate the divorce mediation process the right way? What are the benefits of collaborative law? And if you are in litigation, battling it out with your spouse in front of a judge, can you still divorce and litigate in a healthy way? Coming up on today's featured guest segment of the Shine On podcast is my interview with Dr. Randy Heller. Producer Dave, let's kick it off with the docket. It's ready to go, Evan. Here we go. And now let's see what's on the docket. First item on the docket, Evan, comes to us from the New York Post. Item one. The Post reports the following. Ruling could stop wealthy New York couples from shopping for divorce court judges. Article reads, no more home court advantage. A new legal ruling will likely stop wealthy New Yorkers from trying to duke it out, their high-stakes divorces, in counties where their vacation homes are located in a bid to beat their spouses. Evan, this is right up your alley. Your thoughts on this development? Producer Dave, I love a good game of poker, and this article talks about one of the wild cards up most divorce attorneys' sleeves. This is a card divorce attorneys often play and love to play in the state of New York and, who knows, perhaps in states all around the country. The wild card is where to file for divorce. What county in New York State, often known as forum shopping, should you file for divorce in Manhattan or file for divorce in a suburb? out on Long Island, where let's say a vacation home is located. This is all about planning and strategy. And the answer on which county to file for divorce in often is based on several factors, including where the divorce attorney thinks the client will be best served based on financial considerations and also court decisions and prior rulings from the judges who sit on the matrimonial bench. There's a new court decision that may force divorce attorneys to think twice before they make the decision for their ultra high net worth Manhattan-based clients, whether they file for divorce where their primary residence is located or in a county outside of Manhattan where the vacation home is located. And this decision may, just may take away the wild card of forum shopping once and for all. Evan, next item comes to us from mindbodygreen.com. Item two. This piece reads... I've been a couples therapist for over a decade, and there is one thing I ask in every session, no matter what, how did you meet? You might think the reason the writer asked this question is obvious. Why wouldn't you ask that? But it's not exactly why. In fact, letting people recount their early years is an incredibly powerful tool of assessment. And the the headline of this piece, I should say, reads, I'm a couples therapist, and this habit tells me a couple may be headed for divorce. Evan, your thoughts. This is an accurate predictor of possible future divorce. 
Producer Dave, people always say to me, if I could be a fly on the wall in your office, as a divorce attorney, the stories you must hear, they must be incredible. How about being a fly on the wall in the office of a couple's therapist or a marital counselor? They might rival me in terms of the stories that they hear. But for me, the article got me thinking, what do I hear at the first consultation with a prospective client? How does my client tell the story of the marriage, the relationship, the contributions of the other parent when it comes to parenting responsibilities? Many of the same points that are mentioned in this article, the negativity that one spouse may have towards the other, the disappointment or concern that one parent may have about the other parent's parenting abilities or contributions. The framing of the story from when they met to the moment they arrived in my office. What does it look like? This tells me a lot on how the divorce may unfold. Will it be amicable or will it be contentious? Can this divorce be resolved out of court or will we need to get a judge involved? And what it also does for me It helps put the emotional context and the emotional framework around the client's view towards certain positions that client may have towards settlement. So it's a great article. I can totally relate. Next item, Evan, comes to us from thenews.com. Item three. Headline reads, Sandra Bullock opens up on raising her son after the divorce with Jesse James. Sandra Bullock, who is, by the way, 57 years old, looks great for 57, doesn't she, Evan? She looks fantastic. She looks- <laughs> and, and, and by the way, speaking of Sandra Bullock, yep. I think the movie The Blind Side is on TV every single night. Great movie. <laughs> yes. I mean, I find myself watching bits and pieces literally every single night. Yeah, that movie has held up uh, pretty well. I mean, given that it's a true story and everything. And, but she was terrific in that. And the article points out she opened up about the struggles about raising her son particularly in the first year after separation from her ex-husband, Jesse James. Bullock says, I mean, so much had happened. How do you process grief and not hurt your child in the process? Your thoughts on this celebrity situation? Producer Dave, I lived through it. I walk hand in hand with my clients going through the divorce process. I often stay involved in their lives, especially for the year that follows the divorce. And it's often said that the first year following divorce, it's the hardest picking up the pieces, putting the puzzle back together. That first year is filled with a mix of emotions, maybe grief, maybe loss, maybe anxiety. For some, maybe excitement and a feeling that a fresh start is on the horizon. But undoubtedly for almost everyone, it's a time of change. Sandra Bullock opens up and asks the question during this interview with CBS. That's a great one. How do you process grief and not hurt your child in the process? This is it. In a nutshell, what an absolutely brilliant question and the balancing test that she went through and so many divorcing parents go through as well. And let's not forget this. The first year following divorce, that piggybacks off the several years that couples spend in the divorce process, the emotional toll, the financial toll, the time of transition. It's not just that one year after divorce. Parents have been going through this, spouses have been going through this for several years, both during the process, and now you're seeing it in the year that follows. But Dave, let me ask you, if you go back and think about that first year for you, after you went through your divorce, does anything stick out for you in particular about that first year? 
It's it was not unlike Sandra Bullock describes it. I mean, it, it's it's full of chaos. It's full of figuring things out. Everything from how you spend your time trying to manage everyone's schedules so that it doesn't disrupt the, the, the children as much as you can possibly plan that way. And also just, you know, it, it, it's getting used to this new normal of, you know, you've been referring to your spouse. You know, I've been, I had been saying my wife for 23 years. And when people ask people, I just <laughs> I have to say, well, you know, that person who I guess used to be my wife. So it's, you know, we managed to get through it, but this, as I've said to you before, you don't get through it without pain, without anguish, without a lot of sadness. So the best thing about that first year is if you can put it behind you, then you can get on to hopefully a happy future. No, it's true. And, and, and let me ask you, if years later, if you look back on that first year, is there anything that you would have maybe done differently or thought about having mm-hmm. lived through it? I would have, I just, I, I guess, accepted the fact that not everything's going to feel great all the time. You know, and and you know, happily, my ex wife and I, we were pretty aligned. I mean, you know, we, we weren't best friends immediately after we got divorced. <laughs> there were certainly things we disagreed about, but I I think the best advice I'd give to someone in that first year is, you know, give yourself a break. If you feel like crap, that's normal. If you feel incredibly sad, that's normal, and. Don't try to make everything perfect because you can't. And don't don't um, freak out too badly if the kids are expressing sadness or discomfort. That that's supposed to happen. It's not supposed to be easy. So that's the advice I would give. It's great advice. We are up to the portion of the show where Evan gives his thoughts on the issues of the day. And a question that you must get a lot, counselor, is what is the effect of an infidelity, an affair in a relationship on a future divorce? Evan will give his thoughts. In this week's edition of the Shine On Spotlight. The Shine On Spotlight. Producer Dave, you're absolutely right. It's a question I get asked all the time. And on this week's episode, I'm going to shine a spotlight on the relationship between infidelity and your divorce in the state of New York. Look, the reality is if you were unfaithful once, twice, three times, or a hundred times during your marriage, it is absolutely no relationship to whether or not you can parent your children. It has no relationship whether you can make good or appropriate decisions on behalf of your children. You may have been the most disloyal spouse, but you may be the best parent ever. A court is not going to look at or consider the fact that you had an affair during your marriage when it comes to your ability to parent, when it comes to a court making a decision on custody or determine the days and nights you spend with your children. With respect to finances in New York, if you're unfaithful and infidelity is an issue in your marriage and now in your divorce, generally, that's not a reason to receive less of the marital estate than if you did not have the affair altogether. New York is a no-fault state, and generally, with an exception, a judge is not going to look at marital fault or consider why the marriage may have ended and award less of the marital estate to the party who had the affair. Now, the exception I mentioned is with respect to finances, and that's because there's a legal concept in New York, wasteful dissipation of marital assets. If you can prove that your spouse spent marital money on another relationship, you may be entitled to seek a credit, or really a financial credit for money that was spent. Where I really see the relationship between infidelity and divorce being intertwined is the emotional impact 
because emotions that one spouse may feel and hold against the other party and use throughout the divorce process, it fuels the fire. It can often add significant time, delay, and expense to the process because emotion during the divorce process guides people's positions. And a lot of times it's important to separate the emotion from the legal position. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On podcast is Dr. Randy Heller. Dr. Heller is a licensed therapist, mediator, parent coordinator, reunification specialist, and divorce facilitator. She runs the Family Network, a collaborative counseling center for positive growth and change. Dr. Heller's practice aims to combat the stigma that divorce has to always be a war, but instead can be a way to peacefully transition to the next stage of your life. Dr. Heller, welcome to the Shine On podcast. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Evan. Thanks so much for having me. I really am excited to do this with you. And Randy, it's great to have you here. And there's so much we're going to get into. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for months because of the many hats that you wear when you work with clients going through the divorce process. And on today's episode, we're going to pull back the curtain and really get an inside look and perspective from you on what's it really like from the perspective of a mental health professional who helps people navigate divorce and breakups. But before we do that, tell us about your background and what got you interested in the field of mental health. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I'll be transparent because it's the only way that I can be useful to the people who I work with and who cross my I truly come from a legacy of divorce. My Going back to my great-grandparents, and for those of you who can't see me, I am more than middle-aged. And so that's a long time ago. Family conflict and divorce, going back to my great-grandparents, when divorce wasn't even a thing. And what I recognized was that there was a cycle being perpetuated throughout the generations. And it impacted every member of my family throughout the generations, primarily emotionally and mentally. And the impact on each generation of children, I believe, perpetuated that divorce cycle. And so growing up in in families where there's conflict leads to emotional distress for children, children feeling isolated, neglected. And so not only did I begin my career working to assist families transitioning through divorce, I also began my career intending to assist people where there is distress, because that's often a very lonely place as people are experiencing nowadays. And Randy, was there an instance for you, given your experience with divorce and growing up with it, and really divorce being such a part of your family in many ways, was there a moment for you that made you realize that you wanted to create a space for couples to explore alternative ways to divorce and not being in the traditional in-court litigation system? There absolutely was, Evan, and I'm so thrilled you asked me that question. I don't exact. I tell this story often, and I don't exactly know how old I was when you're, you know, a child. You know, you just don't pinpoint an age, perhaps. But I think I was somewhere around eight, maybe ten. And I say that because I was walking to elementary school. I lived in Queens and we walked to school in those days. 
School was in <laughs> and I had just left my household and there was a terrible conflict between my mom and my dad, which was not unusual for me to experience. And I remember walking to school and saying to myself, I'm going to get away from this. I'm going to create a different life for myself. And I don't think at that moment in time, at eight or 10 years old, I thought about others. You know, kids are really egocentric. And I was thinking about myself. And that's really how it came to pass. I made a decision early on that I was going to get away from that somehow, some way. And I think the life path that I chose, and I believe we choose, really helped me to live out that vision. And Randy, because you lived it and you experienced it, when you work with clients and parents who are in contentious divorce battles, and they're arguing and they're fighting, What's your approach to help them appreciate the perspective of that child who's at the center of their parents' conflict? Yeah, so what I've been told from the clients who I work with, for the most part, is that my transparency, as I began saying uh, when we started this conversation, my transparency really helps them to know that I'm not just talking from a textbook that they know that I lived it and I understand it. And although I make clear that my experiences are not theirs and I'm not them and they're not me, I'm bringing something to the table that offers them information about experience and information about the ability to transform their own experience. And certainly if they have children, the experiences of their children, so that they can interrupt the patterns and the family patterns that are occurring and really make a difference. You know, for me, of course, you can't go back and change the past. And I tell my clients that as well. Can't go back and change the past. However, each thing you do in the present has an impact on healing the past. And so that is something that I share with them and I continue to talk with them about. The other thing is that, you know, I did write my uh, dissertation on mental health professionals working in the field of collaborative divorce, but really in order to do a good research study, you have to be comprehensive. And so I explored all aspects of divorce, all methods for people to divorce, and the impact on families and children specifically of high conflict in divorce. And so I share the information that I gleaned from my research and the research that came before me to help parents to understand that I'm not criticizing, I'm not judging, I'm offering them information that they can utilize that sometimes they really don't recognize. You think it's common sense, but they just don't recognize because they're so in turmoil. And Randy, for so many people, it's hard to see how to move forward in a productive and healthy way during the divorce process. And I would think to understand what people can do better during divorce or when there's a breakup, that a breakup in divorce doesn't have to turn into the proverbial boxing match where people who once said I do until death do us part now go jab for jab, blow for blow in the divorce ring. It helps looking at the mistakes that people make time and time again over and over and over, and why it may be so hard to break these patterns. So take us into the mindset 
of someone thinking about divorce and the weight and the conflict and the internal debate that goes through someone's mind who is deciding on whether to divorce or not and just how hard this decision can be. Yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind when I'm listening to you is fear. There is so, so much fear that clouds people's ability to think, that clouds people's ability to act and to move forward. And so I think the first thing that myself as a therapist or in whatever role I'm in um, talks with a client about or clients is what are they most afraid of and how can they embrace that fear? First, they have to acknowledge it, of course, because fear shows up in a lot of different ways, right? So fear shows up with anger, fear shows up with sarcasm, fear shows up with avoidance, or fear shows up with aggression. So there's so many ways that that can present that they may not even realize it's fear. So once we get to the fear and what would need to be in place for them to feel less fearful, they're able to identify ways for them to move forward. The other thing is that people tend to hang on to the past. And that's a natural inclination. We hang on to the past because we're hurt or we're sad or we're disappointed or a gamut of emotions. And I think recognizing the need to let go of the past is the only way not to be weighted down and to be able to gain some momentum and gain some movement. The other thing I talk about so much is anger, anger and resentment and how poisonous that is for an individual. So, you know, I often use the phrase that, you know, feeling this kind of hate and anger is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. And I try to help them to recognize how it's not a, productive emotion. So really helping them to identify the emotions that they're experiencing, because so much of it just feels like a tornado of emotion, right? So, so they don't really understand what they're feeling. And usually that results in lashing out or being paralyzed. So it goes one or the other and trying to help them to kind of unpack that so that they are less weighted down, as you suggest, and can move forward. And Randy, you talk about all the emotions that are associated with divorce, that someone who's going through it, what they feel, what they're experiencing. And right now I feel there's so much talk out there, whether it's just to pick up the pieces, get it together after divorce, or just move on. It should be so simple or go date. And people just, they say that in a very cavalier way. And so I wonder if the significance of divorce and what it's like to go through it is misunderstood or not truly understood at all by people who are not going through it, people who are not experiencing it, by people who don't have to go home and explain it to their children, starting over the trauma of the divorce, as people on the outside can't appreciate the pain, the loss, the devastation, the ripping apart of the intact family unit that just happened. So tell us about the real impact of the loss that people experience when they go through the divorce process? Yeah, I think that's such an important point because I think that, as you say, people who do not experience anything in life 
have a difficult time empathizing with those people who do, right? So, and I also think that people have a tendency to want to fix things for others. And so in doing that, they might impose some shame, some guilt, some doubt in people who are experiencing these emotions. And then they feel like they can't even share these emotions with anyone else. You know, I talk often about the fact that divorce is like a death. It's, it is a death. It's the death of a vision that we had, a life that we planned, experiences that we hoped for, promises that we made. There are so many aspects of grief in divorce and people just don't, other people, outsiders just don't recognize that. And, you know, instead what they do is they assign blame. And as I said before, they assign shame. And also here's another aspect that I believe occurs. People who are close to people who are getting divorced sometimes feel the fears that if this happened to you, maybe it can happen to me. So it's almost like a plague, you know, I need to kind of step away from it and step away from you. And so what that does is that also renders the person who's going through a divorce isolated and alone. And so now they're isolated, they're alone, they're living with pain, they're living with guilt, they're living with shame. They experience anger and loneliness and depression and anxiety, fear, as we talked about. And they really have to learn how to kind of reconstruct their lives and move on. But that's a process. And and nobody can tell anybody how long that process should take, much like grieving a death. And I think people who are listening on the outside of this circumstance really need to pay attention to that because this is the very time where people need support. This is the very time where people need empathy and comfort. And I don't mean sympathy. Sympathy and empathy are very different things. They need empathy and support and comfort and a village to rally around them and help them. Randy, let's dive into the divorce process and really the different ways people can divorce. Litigation, mediation, and collaborative law. Let's start with mediation and collaborative law, two out-of-court options to resolve a divorce. Tell us the difference between those two process choices, and are there some couples that might be a better fit for, let's say, collaborative law than mediation or vice versa? Yeah, so I also work as a uh, certified family mediator, um, certified in Florida, but working in New York as well and Connecticut. I do think there are distinctions. And I think the way that I envision it is when somebody comes to me and they, you know, are exploring options, we explore how much support do they need? And by that, I mean, how much legal advice do they need? How much emotional support do they need? How much assistance do they need in facilitating communication between them and they and their ex or soon to be ex spouse? Are their children involved? How much money is involved? How many, you know, what are the assets and the liabilities? And so, for example, when I think about mediation and particularly myself as a mental health professional who is also a mediator, 
I don't take on any mediation cases by myself if there are complicated matters. I don't take on any mediation cases myself if there are complicated financial matters, if there are complicated issues related to assets and liabilities, because that's not where I'm skilled and that's not where my knowledge base is. So in those instances, If somebody wants me to facilitate communication, I can do that, but I will always bring in either an attorney or a financial professional to assist with that because there are complicated legal matters and financial matters that I'm not well-versed in. So again, if it's a simple matter and there's two people who feel like, okay, we, we don't have a large estate, it's not complicated, we know how we want to share it, we just need somebody to help us to talk about it and then write it up. I think mediation is an appropriate process for them. Of course, that would be a pro se mediation. And as you know, there's mediation that goes along with litigation. And in that instance, I think that people who use that process can benefit from the support of their attorneys. And yet at the same time, a mediator who can help them really to communicate and work together. And even though outside of the collaborative process, collaborate about those issues in an effort to peacefully resolve their marital dissolution. I'm not even going to call it a dispute. I think when we look at the collaborative process, we look at people who have somewhat more complicated issues because they have children. They may have more complicated financial matters to deal with. And there may be, of course, legal ramifications of how they decide to do that. So the benefit, to my mind, of the collaborative process, the significant benefit of the collaborative process is they have a team of experts in each area that is related to divorce. So we've talked today about how divorce is really an emotional issue. It's a legal issue, but I believe it's primarily an emotional issue. And it's a financial issue, right? So in collaborative divorce, you have collaboratively trained attorneys who are working towards peaceful resolution, who are also advocating for their clients in a peaceful way, providing legal advice and and support to each client. You have a mental health professional or a team of mental health professionals working with the couple and the team depending on the needs of the clients. So if there are children, we might bring on board mental health professionals who work as child specialists, who then bring the voice of the children and the children's needs to the collaborative table. You might have a collaborative facilitator, which would be one mental health professional facilitating the process and the communications that go on. Or you might have divorce coaches who each mental health professional would be working with one entity of the couple to help them to manage their emotional triggers, if you will, and their communication skills and prepare them to come to the collaborative table in a way that they can effectively negotiate and communicate. So again, if you are hearing all of the components of what I'm discussing with you, you recognize that that would probably be in more complicated matters. Although I just completed a collaborative matter with a couple who came to the table and said, 
you know, we, we do need legal advice and we have some complications with our finances, some complicated matters with our finances. However, our biggest goal is that we have a daughter and we want to remain amicable and we need, we need someone to help us with a parenting plan. And so we assembled a team and we helped them and we completed it in two, in less than two months and two team meetings. So that I wouldn't say was complicated, but it could have become complicated if they went into another process. And they had the right team in place in the situation that you're describing. And so, Randy, let me ask you, what is your approach when you work with clients who are in a contentious, high-conflict divorce, but have agreed to resolve their divorce in either mediation or collaborative law? Yeah, so I have somewhat of an unconventional approach, I'll tell you that. Shocker. And I say that because... When people hear contention, I think their first thought is, oh, we have to keep these people apart because if we don't keep them apart, they're gonna, there's going to be more contention. And when I talk about my being unconventional, my first inclination is to try to get them together. Now, granted, the silver lining of COVID is that when I do get them together over the last couple of years, I do it on Zoom. And so they can be together. I actually just just encouraged a couple who I'm working with. I said, I'm going to get you together, but you don't actually have to be together in the same space, which gives you some, you know, open space for yourself to feel safety and comfort of your own homes or wherever you choose to be. Um, but again, my inclination is get to get them together, particularly if they have children, but not solely if they have children, but particularly if they have children. And my reason for that is, and I do that in mediations as well, it helps me as either the facilitator, the mediator, whatever role that I'm in, the parenting coordinator, to see their interaction patterns, to see whether there's a power balance or a power imbalance to see how they react to one another, because I'm a firm believer that every action is an invitation for someone to react or to respond, to see what the triggers are, to see who steps up and who steps back and how that dance is done. Because once I have that information, I can then help them to interrupt those patterns and do it differently. What I do is, in order to encourage them to participate in this way, and talking even with their attorneys or other professionals involved in terms of my approach, I talked to them about the fact that I realized how difficult this is, how it might be scary, how it might be uncomfortable, how it might be distressing or sad. So I join with them around that. I let them know that I'm there to support them and help them in a neutral way. That's the other part. Meeting with them together for the very first time establishes my neutrality. So I'm not hearing one story first before I hear another, because when that happens, the other person thinks, oh, she already knows, you know, she already has a bias. She already has a belief system. So when I meet with them initially, meeting with them together establishes my neutrality, allows me to join with both of them around the reality that, if they knew how to do this better, problem solve, communicate, resolve their conflicts, they probably wouldn't be getting divorced. And so I'm kind of getting the elephant that's in the room out on the table and saying, I know this is hard and I'm here to support you and help you. And then it also allows me to explain my role, whatever hat I'm wearing that day and my responsibilities and how I will approach 
trying to help them to solve their problems. And that's the key, Evan. It's not, I'm not there to solve their problems. I'm there to help them to solve their problems because at the end of the day, I go away and they have to solve their own problems and develop the skill to do that. Randy, we've talked about mediation, collaborative law. Now let's talk litigation. Litigation by its very nature, it pins one person against the other. The court process is set up with one person versus another person. If a couple comes in to your office and is adamant about going straight to litigation, do you ever try to suggest alternative methods? And what does that conversation look like? Yeah, I'm going to be, again, transparent. I always suggest (laughs) And I start with my own story and the stories of those children who come through my office as damaged goods. You know, when I began in this process many, many years ago, it was even before I knew about the collaborative process, people would drop their kids off in my office or they would come to therapy and they'd be talking about fix my child. We had a terrible divorce or fix me. I can't move on. I can't have a relationship. We were in a terrible divorce. My parents had a terrible divorce and now I don't have a, know how to have a relationship, all of those things. So I share that information with them and I share information about how processes can be healing or processes can be damaging. And in all due respect to litigation attorneys, much like you just mentioned, I think it's the litigation process that perpetuates the conflict and the damage. And so I make no bones about that. I also talk about the tremendous expense of litigation. That's not to suggest that the collaborative process or even mediation at times, but more so the collaborative process, that's not to suggest that it's not in its own way costly at times. But we talk about the healing that occurs. We talk about the efficiency of the process. We talk about how it's a client-driven process. So they as clients are empowered to use their resources to make decisions about their family. So as opposed to talking through attorneys, they learn how to talk to each other in mediation or in the collaborative process, as opposed to having attorneys make decisions about how they should spend time with their children. They're deciding how to spend time with their children. They're deciding what works for their families. You know, there are many families that aren't traditional families and They have a different way of doing things. And who are we to say that it should be done a different way? However, when they're in litigation, it's either their attorneys who decide with each other when they're negotiating, or it's a judge who ultimately decides how they should be sharing their children or where children should be living or what they should be doing. And I talk to them about all the detriments for the entire family of those processes. And Randy, if that couple who hears your own personal experience, who sits and listens to exactly what you just said, responds and says the thought of going through the mediation process is just too difficult, and they do decide to proceed with the litigation process, how can you still proceed with your divorce in litigation and navigate the process in a healthy way? Yeah, so... Again, unconventional as I am, uh, my approach is to 
try to work with the attorneys and get them collaborating. And so, you know, just recently I, I was hired on a parent coordination case and I met with the couple, as I said, together in the first meeting and really um, they were being driven by their attorneys. You know, my attorney said this, my attorney said this, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this. And so I sent an email to the attorneys and I said, you know, you brought me into this and now I need your help. And so we had a call and we all talked about how they could either drive the conflict or drive the peace and contribute to the peace. And to be honest, sometimes Attorneys really don't want to take that approach because, as you know, Evan, and I don't mean to be generalizing, but, you know, it's been said that, you know, the more billable hours that you have, the better you look in your firm. And so conflict creates lots of billable hours. What I also say in that regard is myself as a therapist, so I could either make a good living by keeping people sick and then they have to keep coming to therapy or I can make a good living by helping people to get well and move beyond their challenges. And then they go out and they refer to other, they refer me to other people. And I say the same for, for lawyers. You don't have to drive conflict to have a successful practice. And I think that once lawyers recognize how important it is to create peace and facilitate peace for the entire family. And they realize what happens to families when they don't do that. They come around. Not always. I mean, I've had conversations with attorneys trying to kind of move them into the collaborative process. And they tell me, I love to litigate. I want to litigate. I love to go to court. I like the fight. And I really talk to them about that means you like destroying families, right? Because that's what you're doing. So again, I've been known to be kind of direct and um, very passionate about trying to create peace. And that too can be very healing, very healing. Randy, let's stay with that theme because in law school, there's no class that attorneys take that really can prepare them for what it's like to walk hand in hand, side by side with clients going through the divorce process a process you mentioned loss, death, transition, arguably it's the most difficult time and experience that someone may ever go through in life. And I'm sure you hear a divorce attorney say, we're not therapists, although it may often feel we play the role. And while I know you're not suggesting that we play the role of therapist, how can knowing and appreciating what our clients may be experiencing and thinking Help us to be better attorneys and more helpful for our clients. Yeah, I mean, I think that's key. And I think it's about education. You know, I I spent a lot of time lecturing in law schools, talking to law students about the detrimental impact of litigation and conflict and the perils of divorce on families What I also believe and learned from my own research and the research that came before mine is that divorce does not have to be devastating. People can emerge resilient on the other side. In actuality, what we know about children of divorce is that children of divorce can really do better in life than children from intact families. And if you think about that, it makes sense because they have to learn how to deal with adversity. They have to learn how to deal with problems. They have to learn how to deal with discomfort. 
That is only true if their parents have what we call a good divorce. And there is an actual term, the good divorce, that was coined by Constance Ahrens, who was a mental health professional and researcher. And so if I teach these ideas to law students, they're learning something different than they have learned in their curriculum. As a matter of fact, I sit on the Committee for Higher Education Task Force of the collaborative, the international collaborative community, and we do try to put modules and coursework on alternative dispute resolution into the law schools. And actually, I wrote a course for mental health professionals, graduate students at Nova Southeastern University in Florida, where I teach master's and doctoral students in family therapy about alternative dispute resolution, because they too, they, they don't know about these alternative processes. They knew what they know what they see on TV and marriage story and war of the roses. And sure. they think that's the only way. And they also think if they're going to protect their client and help their client, they need to send them to the, you know, biggest shark lawyer, lawyer, they're now learning a different approach. And they are on the front lines of people who aren't going to make it. And they're referring now to alternative dispute processes. Brenda, you mentioned a good divorce. You hear a lot of talk. We discussed a healthy divorce. What is a good divorce? What does that look like? How would you define it? Yeah, so I think each person would have to define that for themselves in large part. In terms of my vision, I would say that a good divorce is one where the parents can put aside the way they feel about their ex-spouse as a ex-partner or how they were as a husband or a wife and focus on the needs of their children. I would say that a good divorce is, it comes out of people who could recognize that even if they felt like they were the one betrayed and they were the one that was hurt and they were the one that was offended, if you will, that they have a part in that. If they recognize that nothing happens in isolation, that everything happens in the space between two people who are in relationship and they can own their part in what went wrong, I think they can then let go of some of that anger, that resentment, that betrayal that perpetuates the conflict and they can move on. And that's in large part what I try to help them to do in my roles in whatever role I'm in. I think a good divorce is one where each person gets some of what they want, not everything what they want. And they recognize that that is probably the best outcome that they can get. And I also think a good divorce is one where people stretch. And I use the term stretch as opposed to the word compromise. And I'd like to say that I think it makes a significant difference. So in compromise, People have to give up something. Nobody likes to give up anything. But in stretch, we're contributing. We're contributing to the betterment of the whole, right? And why do you think volunteerism is good for depression? Because people like to contribute. When you go through a toll booth and you pay for the car behind you, you feel good. When you do community service, you feel good. When you contribute to cause, you feel good. So if people can frame it in their minds that they're not giving up something, they are actually contributing to the betterment of the whole, it feels better. And then they feel more at peace, feel like they're being their best selves, and they can move on. One more thing. 
I think a good divorce comes out of people's realization that they're no longer in charge of trying to change the other person because that other person is unlikely to change because you tell them to. I truly believe that people can change. I have to believe that people can change. I'm, I'm a therapist for 30 plus years. However, I think that change comes from within. It doesn't come from somebody telling you that you have to. It comes because you want to. And so I always say to people, look at yourself. What can you do to be your best self? What can you do to communicate more effectively, regardless of how the other person does? What can you do to be the best co-parent, regardless of what the other parent does? What can you do to let go of the anger and resentment, regardless of what the other person does? Randy, this is what makes you absolutely fantastic at what you do. Thank you for coming on the Shine On podcast. Tell everyone listening how people could reach out and get in touch with you. Oh, thanks again for having me, Evan, because this is, you know, spreading my word of peace and healing. So you can reach me at the family, N-E-T-W-K at AOL.com. That's the family, N-E-T-W-K at AOL.com. Sounds like network, but it's N-E-T-W-K. And I am licensed to work in Florida, Connecticut, and New York. It was such a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Evan. You're terrific. You should be a radio talk show host in your, uh, <laughs> in your spare time. You really I should. If only I could. Uh... Episode 36. How great was that? Dr. Randy Heller, she was on fire. What a tremendous spot with her on today's episode. My guy, producer Dave, <laughs> the podcast producing legend who always brings his A game. How good was Randy Heller? Amazing. Amazing. Another terrific one, Evan. And producer Dave, you're amazing as well. And for all the listeners, you can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, Pod 617, and all major podcast platforms. And check us out on the Shine On Podcast YouTube channel. Follow the podcast and follow me on social media for the latest content. Head over to shineondivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.